0: Twelve lectures entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is the seventh lecture entitled The Gnostic Foundations of Pre Christianity Imagination of Europe, given in Dornock on the 15th of July, 1923. In a time when humanity is faced with great questions and momentous decisions, we have to raise our understanding of contemporary phenomena to the spiritual level. After all, the spiritual is not an abstraction, but something which both transcends and affects the physical. Whoever only perceives the physical plane, even if they allow that the physical is permeated with spirit, is only observing a fraction of the world in which human beings think and act. For a few centuries this was justified up to a point But for the present and the near future, this justification has ceased to exist. And so, today, I want to begin to look at contemporary events in their direct connection to events in the spiritual world and their effects on the physical plane. Before we can go into this, however, we must consider what spiritual impulses affected human development and led us to this moment in history. For many centuries Western civilization and all that grew out of it was defined on the basis of just a fragment of world development. This was quite legitimate. It was legitimate that in times when the Bible with the Old Testament was the ultimate authority, people traced their origins back to that moment in world evolution when Jehovah created human beings. In earlier times, Human beings regarded this intervention of Jehovah as a much later occurrence, and not one that they would look back at as the definitive moment. In these earlier times, they viewed the creation of the world by Yahweh or Jehovah described in the Old Testament as being preceded by an older phase of development, which was much more spiritual than what people usually imagined in the context of the Bible. For them, the moment captured in the Bible the creation of human beings by Jehovah only came later and was preceded by a whole other phase whereby Jehovah himself was described as a being who only intervened in world development quite late in comparison with other beings. When they reflected on the initial stages of world evolution, they looked back to Greece, and to a primordial being who was seen as the true creator of the world, the Demiurgus or Demiurge. To understand this being you would need a much higher level of spiritual cognition than is necessary to understand the Old Testament. The Demiurge was presented as a being dwelling in spheres of exalted spirituality, where there was no thought of a material existence leading to the kind of humanity which would be created by the Jehovah of the Bible. The Demiurge is a sublime being, a creator of worlds, whose power of creation consists essentially of bringing forth, so to speak, spiritual beings. The beings produced by the Demiurge were progressively lower and lower. The expression isn't really appropriate, but we don't have anything else. However, They were still far from being subjected to earthly birth and death. In Greece they alluded to this by speaking of eons and differentiated between eons of the first kind, eons of the second kind, and so on. See Diagram. These eons were the beings emanating from the Demiurge. Then in this series of eons there was a relatively minor being, a minor eon, Jehovah. And now we come to what in the first Christian centuries the so-called Gnostics offered as a renewal of the contents of the Bible, but where there is always a gap in their understanding. Yahweh or Jehovah united himself with matter, and from this union humanity was born. Thus, according to their thinking in the first Christian centuries, the act of creation of Yahweh or Jehovah, who was himself a lowly descendant of the sublime eons right up to the demiurge, consisted of uniting himself with matter and bringing forth humanity. All that has its basis in the world of the senses, but effectively rises above it, in earlier times humanity understood this Later, they no longer did, is summarized in the expression Pleroma. See diagram, over. Pleroma is therefore a world which transcends the world of the physical and is populated by individualized beings. Virtually on the lowest level of this Pleroma world appears the human being, brought to life by Yahweh or Jehovah. On the lowest level of this Pleroma, a being emerges who lives not in just a single person, nor in one people, but in the whole of humanity, and who remembers our ancestry in the pleroma from the demiurge, and strives to regain this spirituality. This is the being Akamoth, who to the Greeks was the personification of the striving of humanity toward the spiritual. So through Akamoth, We have a quest for the spiritual. Readers aside, Achamoth is spelled A-C-H-A-M-O-T-H, Achamoth. End of readers aside. Now, this world imagination is joined by another one. The Demiurge has answered the quest of the Achamoth and has sent down one of the early eons who then united with the human being Jesus of Nazareth so that the striving of the Akamoth would be fulfilled. Thus, in the human being, Jesus, there lives a being from the eon evolution, who is spiritually much higher than Yahweh or Jehovah. Among people in the first centuries of Christianity who had this imagination, and there were many who looked up to the mystery of Golgotha honestly and fervently, the idea developed that a great mystery surrounded the human being Jesus because of the primordial and ancient holy eon which dwelled within him. People tried to fathom this mystery in various ways. Today it's not really meaningful to reflect on the various forms in which people in the earliest Christian centuries, in Greece and then in Asia Minor and farther on, imagined how this eon being lived in the human being Jesus. This is because the ideas with which people try to approach such a mystery have all long disappeared from our thinking. In our thinking now, there exists only what surrounds us in the sensory world, what is connected to us between birth and death. At the most, a person might extrapolate what they see around them from birth until death onto what could spiritually lie behind this physical, natural world. The direct and intimate relationship that human souls once had to the pleroma and which they spoke of as their relationship to the spiritual world, just as today people speak about their relationship to trees and shrubs, clouds and waves, all that existed then in their imaginations as images of the connection between humans and the spiritual world, which was to them more interesting than the physical world, all that has disappeared. This direct relationship no longer exists. And we can say, the latest centuries in which you could find such ideas in the civilization from which European or Occidental civilization has evolved with the first, second, third, and a large part of the fourth century CE. After that, the possibility of ascending to the Pleroma world disappears, and a new age begins. Then the time comes where such thinkers as Augustine or Scotus Origina appear. Then the scholastics and the blossoming of European mysticism Times when the language of the mind was based on a knowledge quite different from that of earlier ages. People now sought knowledge in the physical sense world and tried to develop concepts and ideas of the supersensible worlds from there. But the earlier sense of the direct experience of the spiritual world, the pleroma, was gone. Human beings were meant to enter an entirely new phase of development. It is not a question of assessing the merits of ancient or medieval times, but of recognizing what the task of human civilization is in the various ages. So we can say that the direct experience of the pleroma evolved in ancient times, which had the task of developing that power of spiritual cognition oriented toward the spirit. Then, as time moved on, there arose out of the depths of humanity a darkness, which obscured the world of the Pleroma, and humanity began to cultivate faculties not known before, faculties of thinking, of reason and rationality. In those older times, with the direct experience of the Pleroma, people didn't develop their own thinking. They received everything through illumination, through inspiration, and through instinctive supersensible perception. Their thoughts were revealed to them. That thoughts would well up or spring up in your mind, that you would form thoughts with logical coherence yourself. All this emerged only later. Aristotle sensed it, but it only really developed from the second half of the 4th century CE onward. In the Middle Ages they attempted to cultivate both thinking itself and all that's associated with it. The Middle Ages rendered a great service to the overall evolution of humanity with medieval scholasticism, which developed the practice of thinking in the conceiving and forming of ideas. The scholastics developed a method of pure thinking, which has now, however, been lost again. This scholastic method of thinking is what human beings should now be learning. However, nobody likes to do this nowadays because everything is geared toward passively taking in knowledge instead of actively struggling for it. Inner activity and the corresponding impulse are lacking in the present age. Scholasticism had this to the highest degree. This is why today someone who understands scholasticism is in a position to think much better, more deeply, and more coherently than, for example, someone trained in natural science. Thinking in science is schematic and short-winded, incoherent. Really, modern human beings should learn the technique and practice of thinking from the scholastics. However, it would have to be a different kind of learning from what people like today. It would have to be an active, lively kind of learning and not just memorizing ready-made subject matter or reading off the results of experiments. Thus, in medieval times, the task of humanity was to develop the inner soul faculty of thinking. We could even say the gods had concealed the pleroma, their own manifestation, because if it had continued to influence human beings, then Europeans would not have developed the wonderful inner activity of thinking that they did in the Middle Ages, and out of which modern mathematics and other disciplines have evolved in a direct descent from scholasticism. This is how we have to imagine it. Over centuries, the spiritual world had given humanity the pleroma as a gift of the heavens. Humanity perceived this world bathed in light and illuminated by ideas as a revelation. Then a veil was, so to speak, drawn over this world. In Asia they still have knowledge of the decadent remains of what was behind the veil. Europe had a sort of curtain which rose up from the earth vertically to the heavens and stretched from the Urals along the Volga over the Black Sea And down to the Mediterranean. Picture an enormous screen erected on the edge of Europe that you can't see through. Whereas over in Asia, the last decadent remains of the Pleroma vision continued. In Europe, there was nothing left of it, and thus the inner culture of thinking developed without the prospect of the spiritual world. This gives you an idea of the development of medieval civilization which brought forth such greatness out of human beings, but which couldn't see what was behind the great screen that stretched from the Urals along the Volga down through the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. For them the East was at most a yearning, but not a reality. Here you have not a symbol but a real image of what the European world was and how under the influence of Giordano Bruno, Copernicus or Galileo People wanted at least to study the earth, the ground, all that is down below. And then they founded the study of the heavens based on their study of the earth, whereas the ancient study of the earth was founded on knowledge of the heavens with the pleroma. Thus, as the light was blocked off by the world's screen, the new knowledge and the new life of humanity developed effectively in darkness. Human evolution moves forward in such a way that when something specific is meant to develop in one area, other human prospects become dark and hidden. Behind the screen, only the culture of the East developed, which was, for earthly purposes, decadent. In Europe, Western culture was in its initial stages. Fundamentally, the European world is still stuck in this phase, But the various attempts in this darkness to reach an understanding of existence, with the help of all kinds of historical knowledge, are based only on externals, masquerading as science, without any insight into the pleroma. We can find a way of looking at these things and their significance for our times, when we appreciate that east of the screen the once prevalent understanding of the pleroma became more and more decadent retreated, so to speak, so that people there acquired a highly developed but instinctive spiritual culture, which increasingly took on decadent forms. In Europe, the life of the soul moved down into the realm of the physical senses, which from the Middle Ages onward became the only accessible world. Thus, beyond the screen, in the Orient, a culture developed that wasn't truly a culture, but which tried to magically recreate in earthly physical form what we can really only experience in the pleroma as the working of the spirit. They tried to bring the living and moving of spiritual beings in the pleroma down to earth in stone or in wood, And in the way these interacted, they sought to perceive such spiritual effects as would exist between beings in the pleroma. What only gods can do, they reduced to the deeds of idols in the physical sensory world. The worship of idols took the place of worship of the gods. And what we can call Northern Asian Oriental magic, is the degenerate version of the reality of the once-revered Pleroma, transferred to the physical sense world. The magic arts of the shamans and their resonance in North and Central Asia, in South Asia too, but there they managed to remain relatively free of these influences, are the decadent form of the ancient visions of the Pleroma. Instead of human soul involvement with the pleroma world of the gods, they substituted magic on the physical sensory level. They tried to replace what the soul once achieved through inner activity with physical sensory magic. A completely armonized pleroma activity developed there and among the spiritual beings in the realms bordering the earth, which in turn affected human beings. So if we go east from the Urals and the Volga toward Asia, then in the astral world bordering the human earthly world, in the centuries of the Second Middle Ages and those of the modern era, we have an aramanized magic practiced by certain spiritual beings who, despite being above humanity in their etheric and astral development, are below them in their soul and spiritual evolution. In the whole of Siberia, through Central Asia and the Caucasus, there are terrible etheric astral beings practicing an earthly armonized form of magic. This affects human beings too, and even though they are not skilled in these arts and can't fully emulate these practices, they fall under the influence of the world adjacent to the earth and immediately bordering the astral world. When we describe something like this, we have to be clear that behind the myths and legends of ancient times there were always tremendous spiritual visions of nature. When in Greece they spoke of fauns and satyrs involved in events on earth, they didn't construct these beings in their fantasy, as some scholars have suggested, but from their spiritual insights into nature. They really knew them, as fauns and satyrs of the astral realm adjacent to the earth. At the turn of the 3rd to the 4th century CE, all these fauns and satyrs moved over to the regions east of the Caucasus, the Urals and the Volga. That became their home and the basis for their further development. In the West, against this cosmic backdrop, the faculty of thinking and a certain dialectic developed in the human soul. As long as human beings adhere to strict and pure forms of thinking, to what can only be developed internally, as in the pure thought forms of scholasticism, then they cultivated what was possible according to the principles of the guiding spirits of the earth. Then they were preparing for what will develop in our present times and in the near future. But this purity of thinking wasn't practiced everywhere. In the east, beyond the screen, so to speak, there was the urge to drag down the activity of the pleroma to the earthly level, to transform the pleroma into earthly magic and aramanized sorcery. To the west of the screen, the pursuit of rationality, dialectics and logic, the understanding of the earthly world in ideas, was mixed up with everything related to... Lust sensations to the pursuit of pleasure in the world of the senses. The pure practice of reason that had developed got mixed up with earthly human luciferic instincts. Thus, another astral world developed immediately adjacent to the earthly one, in which the striving for reason and the practice of ideals were evolving. This astral world existed in the middle of a world where people like Giordano Bruno or Galileo and others strove to cultivate earthly thinking, to discover earthly laws and techniques of thinking. In and among all this emerged the beings of an astral world who absorbed it all and incorporated sensual feelings even into religious life made the striving for rationality subservient to physical sensory experience. So the pursuit of pure reason took on a physical sensual character. Much of what developed in the second half of the 18th and in the 19th centuries as a technique of thinking is permeated with what exists in the astral world, which pervades the world of rationality. The earthly lusts of human beings, cleverly realized and interpreted through this thinking technique, fostered in them an element that was nourishment for certain astral beings, whose aim was to use these keen and highly evolved thought processes for understanding the earthly realm only. Thus, theories such as Marxism arose which instead of raising thinking up to the spiritual level, narrowed it down to the mere interaction of physical sensory beings and impulses. This enabled certain luciferic beings, who live in this astral sphere, to influence human thinking. Human thinking became completely infiltrated with that of certain astral beings And the Western world became just as obsessed with this type of thinking as was the East with the descendants of the shamans. And so finally, people emerged who were obsessed with those astral beings, who brought human lust into this astute but earthbound thinking. And on the astral plane, beings emerged who led such people like Lenin and his comrades into being obsessed with them. Thus we have the juxtaposition of two worlds, the one to the east of the Caucasus, the Urals and the Volga, the other to the west, which form a kind of discrete astral region. We have the Urals, then the Volga and the Black Sea, where the screen once stood. Then we have to the east and west of the Urals and the Volga an astral region of the earth, in which those beings whose breath of life is this luciferic thinking of the West and those beings east of the Urals and the Volga in the adjacent astral region, whose life element is the earthified magic of the ancient Pleroma, long for each other as if for a cosmic union. These Aramonic and luciferic beings strive to unite with each other And so here we have on earth a special astral territory where also those people live whose task is to understand this. If they fulfilled the task that is entrusted to them for the whole evolutionary progress of humanity, then they would have achieved something great. But if they ignore it, Then they'll become deeply influenced and obsessed with the lewd union of aramonized beings from Asia and luciferized beings from Europe, which was meant to take place on a cosmic level. Instead, they strive toward each other with all this cosmic lasciviousness, creating a sultry astral atmosphere and causing human beings to be obsessed with them. This astral region has gradually developed to the east and west of the Urals and the Volga, directly above ground. It is the astral region of the earth for the metamorphosed fauns and satyrs. When we look toward Eastern Europe today, if we can perceive reality as a whole, we don't see only human beings. We see what in the course of the Middle Ages and of modern times, has become a kind of paradise for fauns and satyrs who've been through a metamorphosis in their evolution. Now if we understand correctly what the Greeks saw as fauns and satyrs, then we can look at their development, at their metamorphosis. These beings have in a way always been in our midst, have practiced their lascivious craft, consisting of armonized magic from Asia, and luciferized rationalism from Europe on the astral plane and have infected human beings with it. These transformed, metamorphosed satyrs and fauns look as follows. In their lower half, the form of a goat has become more feral, so that externally they have a lewd, shining goat form. But on the upper part they have an extremely intelligent head, a head that radiates light but that is the image of all possible, luciferized, rationalistic wiliness. These beings living in the faun and satyr paradise resemble something between bears and goats with an ingenious physiognomy, resembling a human being, but an extremely clever, albeit salacious one. During the last centuries of the Middle Ages and the first centuries of the modern age, This region of the astral realm has become a paradise for the transformed fauns and satyrs now dwelling there. Now, while all this is going on, humanity has got left behind, focused on outworn concepts which only describe earthly reality, all the while other factors no less important than those perceptible to physical eyes and to the mind dependent on the physical body are influencing this reality. We can only grasp what is developing between Asia and Europe when we can understand it in its astral-spiritual aspect, when we can see how in Central and North Asia a decadent shamanism, the remnants of an earlier reality, flows over as a bawdy, degenerate magic to unite itself in a kind of cosmic bond with what has become Bolshevism. There, to the east and west of the Urals and the Volga, there is an attempt to marry sorcery and Bolshevism. What is happening there is so difficult for people to understand because it's played out in the form of myth, as Luciferic Bolshevism is united with the completely decadent form of shamanism crossing over from beyond the Urals and the Volga. From the west to the east, from the east to the west, These mutually interacting events are the effects of the faun and satyr paradise. And what is influencing the human sphere from the spiritual realm is the result of the body collaboration between those satyrs and fauns who migrated there in ancient times and the spirits of the West who have only developed one-sidedly everything connected to the head. I'll try to describe to you what is visible to a seer. Spiritual, cloud-like forms mass together as we approach the Urals and the Volga region, whereas the other forms remain unclear. It's as if these masses start to form clever-looking but lascivious heads. It's as if they were constantly turning into heads and losing the rest of their bodies. Then from the east the metamorphosed fauns and satyrs appear, whose goat nature has almost become bear-like, and who lose their heads the nearer they come to the West. And then in a kind of consummation, a cosmic marriage, the beings who have lost their heads engage with those beings coming from Europe who provide the respective heads. This is how these metamorphosed fauns and satyrs come into existence in the astral world. They are earth beings just as physical humans are. They move around in the same world as physical human beings do. They're the tempters and seducers of physical human beings because without having to resort to argument, to convince them, they can just make people obsessed with them. Also people believe that what they do originates with themselves, with their own being, whereas in truth how people behave in this field is often due to their blood being stirred up by such a being who has brought the bear-like goat form from the east and united it with the human head, metamorphosed into something superhuman from Europe. Today we have to grasp such things with the same vigor as the ancient myths were once formed, because only when we can consciously rise up to imagination can we understand what we have to understand, if we want to take part consciously in human evolution. The end of Lecture 7